Hello again. Um, I am in the woods right now. And there were a few things that I wanted to talk about in regards to writing. Because I feel like the last episode that I uploaded was very much just an an introduction, a a broader writing philosophy, I guess. But there's a lot of more specific things that it might be fun to get into. Um, I'm starting this recording outside uh, because I always think better when I'm alone walking in the woods but I imagine at some point it's going to get a little too cold for me to stay out here and I'll probably move inside and continue, you know, pick up where I left off Um, also this doesn't really mean anything to you guys but there is one tree in particular that I often sit in it's the perfect size and shape to spend a little bit of time sitting in and for whatever reason today I can't find him Uh, it has started to snow again you know fall spring one in Canada is now over and it's winter again uh but still, I would think that I could find him quite easily because I, I, I go to him a lot. Um, but maybe because there was a lot of wind last night, maybe he is a slightly different shape or size that I'm used to and that's why I haven't recognized him. Um, it's also snowing right now. It's a, it's a very good setting to, I guess, crouch down and have a little think and a little conversation. So there's kind of two things I could talk about next, and I'm sure they'll, they'll be squished together into one kind of talk. Uh, the first being world building. My series that I I talked about in the last episode is a fantasy series and um, there's a lot to be considered when building, you know, a made-up world. The other thing that I wanted to talk about was that next step that, okay, here's a rough draft what do I do with it and in particular this one is again a mindset kind of philosophy thing the sharing of something that you've put a lot of time and effort into with other people and kind of the fears that can come along with that and um you know, that that experience for me with the first two 
novels because I've, I've shared both of those with uh, a few people. And um, in addition to that, there's excerpts from, I think, maybe by now all five books. No, book four, there's no excerpts I've posted. Um, but I've been on Instagram putting little quotes or snippets or, you know, one-line Wednesday posts. Um, and I kind of think that fits into the category of, you know, showing your writing to other people. All right. So without further ado, let's get into world building. Um, this is a much harder topic to have, um, I guess, a, a through line. Because there's so many pieces that go into making a, a fictional world that, you know, is appealing and interesting and fun to explore. But I will attempt to break it into categories and hopefully some of these things that I'm talking about will actually be actionable as opposed to just floating ideas but really that's I guess not how world building works um and if you listen to the last episode you know that I I don't really have a plan when I'm writing so a large part of world building is me discovering things about the world um, along with the characters that are moving through it. But a nice easy one to begin with when talking about world building is naming. Naming people and places and things. Um, And in particular, I think names and the coming up with names is something that can completely take over the writing process. It can really stall you. Um, As anyone who has attempted to write anything before knows, you could spend six hours on various baby name websites and you can... get caught up in the meaning of the names, the origin of the names, you know, et cetera, et cetera. Um, And in particular, I think I chose to start with names because as someone who reads a lot, I find this can often be a weak point in an otherwise phenomenal fantasy, science fiction, you know, whatever historical thing that you're working on. Um, So, foremost, I think an incredibly practical point to be made here is that people need to not be wondering how to pronounce the name while they're reading it. You know, a hard C or a soft C. Sometimes it seems like people make up names. Um, And 
when I come across them in the text. I have no idea what they sound like. Um, And I guess uh, I myself have broken this rule just a little bit in my series. um, There's a a culture that is um, heavily inspired by, you know, Vikings, um, early Middle Age Scandinavia. And there is a common, um, I don't even know what the word for it is, but in the Scandinavian languages, quite often there are J's that are silent, that are pronounced as Y's. And I have left them in. For example, there is a captain that I I love. I love him. And his name is Floyer, spelled F-L-O-J-E-R. <laughs> so perhaps I'm breaking the very first rule that I've put forward. But hopefully, hopefully the readers will, will know what I meant. Um... So what I did for naming almost all of my characters, Mira is the main character, and her name, there was no thought process. It just happened that way. Um, But I did go on to baby name websites, or I did put in, you know, Google searches like uh, medieval English names, medieval Nordic names etc etc but I think a very helpful approach is to select the very first name that jumps out at you you know what I mean the first one where you're like yeah that sounds cool okay put that in and keep writing and at some point if you think of a better name you can go back and change it Um, but this way you haven't spent you know sometimes as much as two or three days googling and not actually writing anything and something magical that I found happened a lot when I did this is accidentally the name was the perfect fit for for what this person later becomes in the story something that I couldn't have known when I started writing them into the story when the main character meets them or whatever um and I think there's a lot to be said for that you know the the psychological associations we make when we hear a name and there's dozens and dozens of studies on this um a person's name absolutely does change how people perceive them you know what I mean and in my life I don't know why every Amanda I have ever met is blonde and every Jennifer I have ever met is pretty. <laughs> um, and I don't really know why that is. Um, as well, I live in Canada, which is a very multicultural society. And um, something that immigrants 
commonly do here and I don't know if it's the same in other countries and and I don't know really why they do this um but quite often when people move to Canada they will choose an an English name um and it's quite interesting to speak to to people about this why they chose the name that they did choose and how they felt it changed the way people perceived them and interacted with them um if you have any friends that have gone through this experience I highly recommend speaking to them about it it's a very interesting thing another common I don't want to say mistake because it it can work and it has worked in in many books but quite often it cannot work is to pick a name in a foreign language based off what it means you know oh uh, this character is a carpenter so I'm gonna look up what the word for carpenter is in German and that's going to be his name Um, it can work but again maybe because I'm coming from this uh, from Canada where there are many people here who speak multiple languages um, somebody might be reading your book in English but no German and that can kind of pull them out of the the work you know it can take them out of the world for a second Um, And kind of on that vein, as a general rule, I think a simpler name, a shorter name, is almost always better for a character that we're going to be interacting with a lot. Just because, similar to the word said when you're writing, it's it's easy to skip over and stay completely in the world. You know, he said, na-na-na, said doesn't draw the reader's attention away from anything it's almost like subconsciously we skip over that word when we're reading it and just go straight to the dialogue likewise uh shorter names have that effect um a phenomenal example uh from a canadian standpoint um is the name hermione from harry potter um which it seems to me, I, I lived in the UK for a little bit, it seems that it's it's a common enough name there that um, people knew how to pronounce it, they knew what it was, but I had no idea in, what, grade three or four when I started reading Harry Potter. Um, and I think of a lot of people had the same experience where they're so into it, but then every time her name came up, they maybe stumbled a little bit you know, Hermione, Harmony, what, what is she, (laughs) what is this girl called, because we like her, but every time her name comes up, we struggle a little bit, um, and in addition to that, I would say that common names, such as Harry, or Matthew, or Michael, or Luke, you you know, the names that are so common um, that everybody knows them in multiple languages. Um, Those names don't seem to have a personality attached to them when you hear them. You know, there's there's a lot more space when you're writing. Uh, And I think that's kind of why Mira worked for me in particular. Now, when it comes to naming places... 
the only thing that I can recommend, and maybe if I can find the very specific link that I used, I will put it on the Instagram page or in the description of this um, episode. Uh, but there is somewhere online, and I think it's for Dungeons and Dragons players, believe it or not. There is a list of common um, suffixes and prefixes in place names, you know, places that end in pool or cliff or, you know, whatever it is, places that begin with Glen, you know that kind of thing um and nearly all of the names for places that I created and I'm still in the process of creating um came from this this list where I would you know put something at the beginning and then end it so like Shepul is a place and it's yeah, it's maybe not the craziest, weirdest sounding, most intriguing name, but it's it's a name that is not going to stop the reader while they're reading. I also had, um, speaking of names, and this kind of branches into language a bit, because there's many languages in, in my story, but there's also culturally people give each other nicknames a lot which is a phenomenal phenomenal trick I I can't express this enough um because then you don't need to add when you're writing dialogue from a certain character you don't need to add so and so said na 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 and then this other guy said da 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 you know what I mean um the the main character in my series, Mira, um, on the aisle, she's a lady. So there's one character who calls her my lady, you know, and nobody else does, which makes it really easy. I don't need to have an introduction. Everybody knows that's Barrett that's talking to her because he's the only one who calls her this. Um, likewise, uh, the, I don't know how spoilery should I get? There are people who call her Kakin, which means captain. That is a big spoiler. I might have to take that out. We'll see. We'll see how I feel. That's, um... Yeah, I'll see how I feel about that when I'm putting notes together and uploading it. Um, and there's a man who calls her Amira. Because that's the word in his language for a highborn woman. And there's one scene in particular, and it was the scene that made me realize how nifty of a trick this was where something very surprising happened and three people were speaking to her at once and I never once needed to put down who was speaking the reader knew at this point the reader knows Yarlov calls her Kakin Leander calls her Amira and Barrett calls her my lady so they all shouted at her and I could just skip all those extra words and go with the emotion of the scene you know very urgent very to the point we got a gtfo i don't know if i'm allowed to swear if that changes how podcasting works i'm not sure i'll have to look that up later so 
let's put naming aside. There's there's a couple of actionable items actually there, which I'm a little bit proud of. You know, don't make your names hard to pronounce. Try to avoid making up confusing names. Um, nicknames are super handy. Oh, nicknames. I have to, I have to tell you guys about my favorite nickname. My favorite nickname in my series so far is the nickname for Leander, the Norsemen, the, the Northerners. They have started calling him Harriak. And he's a little confused by this, and he asks Mira what it means, and she says, in their language, it is a straight, sharp arrow. It means that you are very clever and focused, but it's also them making fun of how straight you stand. Um, And something else spectacular that happened quite by accident in book five, because I've switched perspectives for book five, Oh, we can also get into perspective. That's a fun one. Put put perspective. But I've I've switched perspectives, uh, and I'm writing from a man. I don't want to tell you guys which man, because it's a big spoiler. Uh, I'm writing from his perspective, and he is Norser. And there are a lot of characters that are foreign to him and speak another language, and because of this, their names are difficult for him to pronounce. And so almost everybody has a a almost cartoonish nickname. There's the tower, which if you read books three and four, you will know exactly who the tower is just from that alone. There's the bear, there's rat snake, etc., etc., Nicknames are really fun, and it's something that I highly, highly recommend. Um, Also, I'm realizing now how symbolic the names are in my story. In book one, Mira... I don't think this is a spoiler. This happens in chapter one. She is kidnapped by a Northman and taken to the North, and everyone there calls her Sotin. And very quickly, she learns to respond to this name she's she's basically a slave in this place um but finally when she starts learning the language she learns that Sotin means slave girl from the south um and she feels a little bit differently about being called that but let's put names to one side because world building is a lot more than the words for things it's a lot more than that it's the um, if anyone is super into philosophy you'll know what I mean the qualia the what is it likeness Um, and that kind of comes from a whole bunch of interesting thought experiments one of them being let's say you take a person who is colorblind Um, who is also a scientist who has spent their entire lives studying the way light affects the way we see things, etc., etc. And this colorblind person completely understands what color is 
and how it works and knows red is this range of light hitting an item reflecting into our eyes you know don't shoot me if um my understanding of color and light is not up to par if anyone listening is actually a scientist who knows what i'm talking about but the thought experiment is okay so we take this person and um let's say we can fix their ability to see color what is gained when this person looks at a red apple there isn't really um, an understanding gained because like I said this person already knows exactly how color works but what these philosophers decided was gained is a thing called qualia the what is it likeness the experience of seeing red and um, when it comes to world building the feeling of the world the experience that's kind of what a lot of us are trying to you know nail down we're trying to make it an emotional experience um and whichever emotion it it can be a terrifying experience it can be exciting it can be beautiful etc etc but not only are we trying to create this new experience we're trying to create this new experience in a way that readers will understand what it is you know we can um a perfect example of this is the description of werewood trees in a song of ice and fire you know readers know what a tree looks like and they know what the colors are and they know what a face is etc etc and then you put all of these things together and you have something new a new experience um and that i think is where the magic of world building really happens and um i think that's a very important part to emphasize when we're talking about world building is starting from something that you know the average person would have an idea of and then taking it to this new place um in particular this works very well um when creating cultures and religions um and there's a lot that fits into that you know architecture clothing uh terrain music etc etc all the things that come together to create a culture um and so i guess i can only talk about this in one extent you know i haven't written a sci-fi although one day i would really like to i have a an idea for what i think would be an interesting sci-fi a sci-fi i'd like to read but let's put that to the side um what i found i did again quite by accident 
when creating the cultures in my series because there are many cultures you know we, we've got the northmen and their explorers and seafarers and so they go to a lot of places and although I don't fully know where the story's going right now I think we're gonna run into even more there's been mentions in my books of other people in other places doing other things and um I imagine at some point those are going to come up. Uh, I guess I have to keep writing to find out. But one thing that I did that not only made it very fun for me to write, but I think made things kind of interesting was I mixed and matched a lot of different historical cultures. In particular, I want to talk about the sun worshippers. Which again is a little bit of a spoiler because, you know, we don't meet them until book two. But they're mentioned in book one. Um, And to me, the sun worshippers are what would exist in sort of late antiquity if there was, instead of the Mediterranean Sea, um, land you know, what all of those cultures bordering the Mediterranean Sea would be if they had mixed together in the middle. So we've got the Greeks, um, the ancient Greeks in particular, the the phalanx um, warriors, you know, the way that the Spartans and many other Greek city-states organized their armies where it's a bunch of people in a line with their shields and their spears and the shield is actually protecting the person to their left. But we also have a lot of North African and Arabic influences. Um, There are basically... I guess belly dancers the and the the fashion that women wear the sun worshipping women wear is very similar to um Arabic ancient Arabic Persian as well clothing and the architecture likewise is very similar to what I imagine ancient Egyptian architecture looked like And all of these things are things that people can picture, you know, in their in their mind's eye. But when you mix them together, it still feels new. It's something you can completely understand, but also it's something you've never experienced. And um, if you, like me, are very interested in history, this is a lot of fun to do. Um, there's a group of people, and I, I don't know how they're going to fit into the story yet, but they've come up here and there, mostly mentions. We haven't actually interacted with them. And it's basically, I combined the Roman Empire with ancient China. Um, and I think 
you know, don't quote me on this, but I have a feeling uh, we're going to encounter some gladiators, some gladiatorial combat. Um, But instead of the way we imagine gladiators when we hear that term, they're going to fight and dress and behave much like people did in the ancient Far East. That also is maybe a major spoiler. I don't know. But I have a feeling. I I have a feeling I... I'm really excited to keep writing to find out if I'm right about who ends up there. (laughs) Um, And I also really want to speak about religion. Because to me, faith and spirituality is so fascinating. Um, And so crucial when writing stories that take place in, you know, a time that feels much earlier than right now. Because there definitely was a a point on earth, and I don't know if it still is this way, um, where most people fervently believed in something bigger going on. Um, And if you, you read my books, you'll see that pretty much everybody has very strong religious convictions and there's quite a lot of different religions at play and not all of them get along. Um, And reading religious texts is one of my hobbies. You know, I've, I've read the Bible and the Quran and the Vedas and Siddhartha and you know the poetic Edas or Edas I'm not sure how to pronounce it (laughs) I've only ever read the word I've never heard anyone say it out loud Um, and as a side note when it comes to story structure religion is a very powerful motivator and a I think a very good reason to have people do things the way that they do them um So we can look at the religion of the Northmen in my books, which is open shut based on um, Norse mythology. And there are some clear equivalents. We have Eagle, who is the god of illusion and trickery, obviously heavily inspired by Loki. We have Herald, the god of sea and storms, uh, inspired by Odin. Um, And he's kind of the gatekeeper. He's the one who decides if you get to go to the good place, um, Herald's Halls, after you die. And he makes this decision based off of how brave you were. Because the, the Norser believed that Every part of your life is decided before you're born. And so really the only two options you have are to attempt to avoid your fate or to face it head on. 
that's the only thing you can do. And if you face it head on, Harold takes you into his halls after you die. And if you don't, you go to Ville. Um, yeah, open shot. I have the sun worshippers and the truth worshippers, which I believe are my equivalents of the first two Abrahamic religions, Judaism and Christianity. And because I believe that that's what they were inspired by, um, I'm also keeping my eyes and ears open for the equivalent of Islam, which I imagine is going to appear at some point in the story. And I, I really want to emphasize this um, this studying of world religions and world faiths because even if religion does not play any part in your story, whatever it is that you're working on, it can teach us a lot about different cultural perspectives so we've talked about this idea of fate um, the idea that everything is predestined that is an interesting point for like an interesting place a character can be coming from um, and it can directly contradict a place that another character is coming from For example, Mira was born on the Isle and the religion that she grew up with doesn't have this idea and there's actually a whole section of the book where she keeps hearing this word scale and she can't understand what it means because where she grew up this idea doesn't exist and everyone keeps trying to give her examples you know the man who captured her and took her to the north said well scale is like how you had an instrument in your hands when I raided your home and if you hadn't have had this I wouldn't have taken you and you wouldn't be here in the north right now. You would probably still be at home. And another woman says it's her children, Danya. She says it's it's Hald and Leif and Illa, my my children. That's my scale. Um, and so she thinks maybe this has something to do with love. Um, and then the medicine woman in town says, no, no, it it has just as much to do if not more with the struggles that you face in your life the things that are bad and wrong and hard to deal with and finally uh, there is a character who manages to explain it to her Fira and a little bit later in the story well a lot later actually several years later um Mira finds herself attempting to explain this very same concept to somebody from her homeland. Um, and uh, as a side note, just because it's on my mind, 
I have to say it out loud. Um, that one dude in my story who loses complete faith, who I think is actually going to be the character book six is from the perspective of, but it might turn out to be book seven. I'm not sure. There's there's two guys, and I, I want to um, kind of explore where they're coming from and what they're up to at that time in my series. Um, and one of them really loses sight of anything good or beautiful in the world and I'm so sorry every time he comes up in this book I'm on book five right now and man oh man I am putting this guy through the ringer and I don't mean to do it it just keeps happening um he's become very hard and I think he is about to become very cruel and do things that um, a person who has any emotion or connection left in them would not be able to do. And maybe you've seen the, um, the March writing challenges that I'm doing on Instagram. But there was one that was like, which uh, Hogwarts house are your characters? Like, which house would they be sorted into? And I mentioned this guy that became a Slytherin. But he started off as a Gryffindor. Um, I feel like I can't apologize enough. Um... And I feel he's already gone so far that he might not be able to come back, you know, if there's a a happy ending, which I still don't know if there is or not. Um, But even if there is, I don't know if he's going to be able to share in any of the happiness or joy, given everything that's happened to him and is in the process of happening to him now. I love you, man. I'm sorry. I'm sorry, bro. But I really want to emphasize the the studying of faith and religion. Because it can open your mind up to different ways of viewing the world that your characters can have that you yourself don't have. Um... You know, the example of the people who believe everything is fated. They're going to behave differently and approach life differently than um, some of the characters who don't believe this. And in particular, at the moment, we have three religious groups interacting. And I have a feeling there's going to end up being more. Um, But all three of these groups have very different goals. And they have um, lines that they cannot cross because they want the type of afterlife that they believe in. You know, the sun worshippers have their seven virtues. And they cannot... 
in good conscience act outside of these virtues and that limits them and also I think makes for interesting plot lines um there's a scene I shared from book five on Instagram where it's in the midst of a long battle and the the steel men are approaching coming towards the main characters on the field and the Norser are laughing and they've all got their hands behind their backs and they're kind of giddy and excited because each of them is holding a surprise for their enemies um and there's one dude who is with them who is a sun worshiper his name's Aeneas um and he's the only one who's not holding a surprise because the sun does not approve of what they're about to do (laughs) um and though a few lines like that don't perhaps add to the story overall. They add incredibly, I think, to the feeling of this world, the qualia. Um, and that kind of brings me to a, a big point, which is quite similar to the point I made in the last recording. Um, quite similar to the the discussion of dream sequences which is to while you're writing add as much detail as possible even if it doesn't actually contribute to the story because one you can always go back and remove that you're like oh it's superfluous I don't need you know (laughs) I'm thinking of the Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, where there's about three pages of of a dinner that they had. <laughs> I think it's when they go into, like, is it a hedgehog? They go into somebody's house, and the food is described in great detail. And I love C.S. Lewis, and I love The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. Um, but that... <laughs> that sequence could have done with a little less description. <laughs> you can go back and take that out, But what you might find is you've accidentally given yourself either something that adds to the sense of the world or something that is outright foreshadowing. Um, In particular, I did that completely by accident early on in book one, in chapter one, Mira is playing a song. Um, in a very frightening situation, the main character plays the harp, Mira, um, and she's, she's basically being forced to play music for somebody that she is terrified of, somebody that is the enemy of her and her family and her countrymen, and she assumes she is about to be killed. And so she chooses to play her favorite song. And for whatever reason, I decided to talk about the song. Um, I gave the name of the song, Tears of the Mander, and what it's about. Um, 
it's about two young lovers who are unaware of the tragedy awaiting them. And she says it's a good last song. Um, but for anybody who's had an advanced reader copy, you will know that accidentally that is the most perfect song she could have been playing at that moment. And I will leave that at that. To attempt to not give too much away, it's really hard to um, to not spoil <laughs> the books for my potential readers while I'm doing this. Um, oh, there's another part where Bureau and Aeneas are singing a song from their country and nobody knows the words or what they mean but they know that it is a a very sad song and that too turned out to be brilliant foreshadowing um there's a part where the baby in book one is getting a little fussy and Fira sings for him a song about rain coming down and washing away all of the sorrows and tragedy in a town that has experienced only woe. And I'm really hoping for this kid's sake that that's also foreshadowing. Another example of adding detail that um, didn't at all foreshadow anything, it didn't add anything to the story, but creates kind of um, a feeling, is there, in, at some point, there's a fight. I won't get into it. Um, but the man who cooks for everybody on board the ship, Flosie, um, he loses an eye in this fight. And, you know, for the rest of his life, he's going to have one eye. Um, and he's not at all bothered by this, actually. He's bothered a little bit by the pain, but they get him nice and drunk. And he kind of laughs and says, don't, don't worry about me. Women love a man with Svendin's kiss. Um... And it's explained that Svendin is the god of war, but in particular the god of military strategy and um, as a side note there I think there's so far there's twelve gods of war <laughs> in the northern faith um and Svendin himself is missing an eye. And so the Northmen laugh and call this disability Svendin's kiss. And that doesn't reveal anything that happens later. That doesn't contribute at all to the overall story. It's completely not necessary. But it 
I think, you know, you could tell me if you disagree, um, I think that adds to the feeling of the world and the feeling of this culture and how these people could take something as um, awful and painful as losing an eye and laugh about it and consider it a way to get women and a way to um, embrace a character trait of their gods. Another way that thinking about religions and, and perspectives on life and ancient cultures really comes into play, um, in particular in my story, but in, in a lot of other stories that I've read, um, is the perspective of different characters in regards to sex um, and love. And if you, you study different religions and compare them, there's drastic differences, right? You know, there's a lot of faiths that say, no, just one person. And um, not only can you only sleep with this one person, but really you should only be sleeping with them in order to, um, you know, create children. But then you look at some more ancient religions um, and you see that some people not only believe you should sleep with lots of people but that in and of itself sex is a way of worshipping the gods and you can imagine how having people with these contradictory views attempting to work together could result in some interesting conversations if not some conflict Um, the Northmen in my story don't have marriage you're with somebody if you want to be with somebody um, and you're not with them anymore if you don't want to be with them and um, in particular there's one dude Hacken he gets um, a very serious head injury at one point and uh because of this, he's a lot dumber than he used to be for, you know, the foreseeable time he spends in the story. And there is a character who has agreed to marry somebody, um, even though this is not the Northern Way, and he can't understand. He says, so, so what is this? Why, why is everyone acting like this is such a big thing? And she says, oh, no, this is... I'm I'm promising to to only be with this one man. And Hacken laughs and he's like, "Okay, yeah, so like a lot of couples do that, but like so what?" And everyone looks at him like he's not really getting it. Um and he asks, "Well, how long how long do you have to only be with this one person?" And she says, "Forever." And he <laughs> He says, oh, well, don't do it. <laughs> What's wrong with you? Don't, don't make that kind of promise to anybody. Um, so, yeah, the Northmen, most of them sleep around a lot. 
Um, a couple of them don't. Burger, he doesn't. He loves his woman back home. He thinks about her a lot. Um, another strange hobby of mine that ties into reading lots about history is reading, you know, ancient legal codes, learning about laws that cultures have had over time, which seems like it's a very boring thing, and and I'll admit in one way it is, but in another way, um, it's incredibly important when world building to think of not only what is culturally or because of religion allowed and not allowed, but what is legally not allowed, what will get you um, arrested or tortured or put in prison or, you know, killed. Um, And quite often in fantasy storylines, you have people from one area going to another area, and this happens in my book and, and many others as well. Uh, this can lead to, again, interesting conversations, if not full-blown conflict. For example, the Northmen celebrate uh, the equinoxes. And they do this by getting completely plastered and taking mushrooms and sacrificing goats and smearing the blood of the goats all over their faces. Now, on the aisle, such behavior is not only frowned upon, it is outright illegal because it speaks to witchcraft. And yeah, that could cause some tension. So I guess all of this rambling is a very long-winded way of saying that, in my opinion, world-building is taking things that already exist, that people already understand, and tweaking them or twisting them or compiling them in a way that creates a new experience. Um, And in particular, I have talked about studying history, studying culture. Oh, I didn't mention, but I highly, highly, highly recommend um, listening to ancient music. Listening to, and this is all over YouTube, this is all over the internet. You can find it really easily. Let's say it's a a Persian-inspired story that you're writing. Um, Listen to music from that time, you know ideally played with the instruments from from that era or from that place um it really helps in every possible way it it shifts your your whole mindset while you're writing um and so i've i've listened to celtic music um i've listened to viking music i've listened to 
Arabic music and Persian music. And I've just recently gotten really into Mongolian throat singing, which is, it's a little bit scary, but like really cool at the same time. And hopefully I'll encounter some of that type of music in the story. Um, Reading law codes. Reading about religions. All of these seemingly unrelated things come together when you're world building. Things that you encountered at all different stages of your life if you if you continue to absorb these kind of influences you know data in and as well um reading accounts of battles has been really helpful uh de bello gallico is um a text written by Julius Caesar himself about the the fights that took place against the Gauls. Um, if you have any good kings, philosopher kings, I highly recommend uh, Meditations by Marcus Aurelius, which I, I recommend for anything in life meditations should be read everybody should have to read meditations um in part because marcus aurelius didn't mean to write a book um this was only found after he had died but um it's a series of little notes and journal entries he made to himself as he was ruling the roman empire about how to be a better emperor and how to be a better person. Um, There is online, you can Google it, it's one of the first things that comes up, there is a transcription of the trial of Joan of Arc which will basically knock you on your ass. It is so interesting. You know, this is a 19-year-old girl in medieval times. And she is probably the ballsiest person I have ever encountered. If you're writing a strong woman or a strong young person, oh my goodness, read The Trial of Joan of Arc. (laughs) That girl is fearless. Um... She's so fearless that it's kind of frightening to read. And of course we know how the trial went and what resulted from the trial. And at the time, she must have also known that if she said what she was saying, that that was what was going to happen. And she said it anyway. Um, Accounts of Catherine the Great are really fun, in part because... She was a bit of a sexual deviant in addition to being a fantastic ruler. There's a lot of biographies that I love. And and in if you get really into this, you will see which people were inspired by which people from history. 
So there's a, um, a wonderful through line. Aristotle was the teacher of Alexander the Great. Okay, that's cool. That makes sense. Um, and a funny little side note about Alexander the Great was he named his horse um, what translates to big prick. Um, and he, he was very fond of his horse. He always rode the same horse into battle, etc., etc. And then you learn that Julius Caesar was greatly inspired by Alexander the Great. And he named his horse what translates to big prick. And then you learn that Napoleon was a big fan of all of these dudes. And he also named his horse big prick. There are a lot of funny things that are going on when you get into reading history. And maybe I'm biased. I, that, that's, that's what my degree is in. I, I have a degree in classics. Um, oh. So that's, that's a, a full summary but something I should have added earlier that I've only just thought of now, which is a big, big part, is languages. Studying, um, even reading the Wikipedia introductory article on linguistics. Oh man, that was so helpful. I had a linguistics course in first year university. Understanding how languages change over time and how there's, I think, um, common structures like common sentence structures which is really helpful if you have a foreign character who is you know speaking to your main characters in not their original language they will invert the order of words in an interesting way you know there's like the ball is mine, mine is the ball, etc., etc. But if you if you nail down the structure of the languages in your story, um, it not only adds a lot to character development, um, but it creates a a qualia. And again, maybe I'm more sensitive to this because I live in Canada because there are so many different. Um, cultures and influences here um, there's something to be said for that and in fact I think I might do a whole um, recording on language creation because I I haven't fully fleshed out as in created several languages but I've I've created enough pieces of several languages in the story that um, that I, I think I might have something to say about that. Um, and I think the reason I thought of this was part of my classics degree required me to study either um, ancient Greek or Latin. And I studied Latin. Um, and uh, another example of how powerful this can be is Harry Potter when um, you know the the witches and wizards are are spell casting the words 
for the spells fit so perfectly. You know, Alohomora feels like that, is, that, that feels right. That feels exactly like the magic word for opening a locked door. Um, and J.K. Rowling also has a degree in classics and nearly all of the spells feel connected to Latin. Um, especially if you go far enough back in history. So there was the, the source language, which we call Indo-European, from which all these other languages broke off and developed. And we know, even though we have no idea what this Indo-European language was, we know there was a common source because a lot of these very different cultures have such similar words for certain things that, um, like for example the a lot of ancient words having to do with ship or boat or seafaring all come from this same source um, a really great example is the word father in English um, Vader in German Pater in Latin, um, and is it Pitter in Sanskrit? It's, it's something very similar in Sanskrit as well. Um, and when you study linguistics, you learn about the common, um, sound exchanges that happen. You learn, um, how TH in one language is a T or a D in another language. Um, you learn about, oh my gosh, there's so many examples. You learn about how F and P are often equivalents you know, D and T are often equivalents. We've got two in English and D and duo, et cetera, et cetera. And um, that actually fits kind of perfectly in with the very beginning of this talk when it comes to naming things. You know, you could take um, a word and make one of these common exchanges and subconsciously people recognize this and and know what the word means you know tying that back into something that people can easily understand uh by now you can probably hear how much i'm shivering so I'm going to make my way back to the house. Uh, also, I think it might start freezing rain. Because the temperature's raised a bit. And it's still snowing, but I don't think it's going to be snowing for much longer. I think it's going to turn into an awful slush in a minute here. Um, so I will pick this back up inside. <laughs>